Welcome everybody to the uh, Wings Over New Zealand show. Um, today's uh, guest is Bruce Cook. Welcome Bruce. Hello. And uh, anyone who's on the Wings Over New Zealand forum will know Bruce as Bruce. Yeah, radically uh, original username there. <laughs> um, Bruce, uh, can you start off by giving us a little bit of background of your um, interest in aviation? Right, yeah, that can go back many, many, many years. Um, I guess when I was probably, yeah, even sort of five or six, yeah. sort of really had developed an interest in, in aircraft. I think um, it would have been probably around about 1977 or something like that. Um, there was a big air show out at Hamilton Airport, yep. and um, mum and dad took me out to that, and uh, I distinctly remember quite a few bits and pieces there. Um, even things like uh, the aerial mapping 8011 Canson, distinctly remember that being there because you wow. could climb up inside it and you could actually go up into the nose and I remember looking down the um, camera site there I thought it was really cool it was sort of like this big big bomber type thing um, so that was still flying back then it was still flying then so it would have been before 82 I guess so so um, yeah, that puts it about 77 and there was an air show then so but is that the air show that they had like a, it was more like an expo and it had the caribous come over and that sort of thing <sighs> can't remember that much about it but it's um yeah, it was definitely a, a big show, yeah. and I mean, I also remember DC, th uh, one of the top dressing DC3s there, and right. all sorts of stuff like that. It was it was definitely a big show, and um, really uh, sort of got. I think that really sort of start started to light the fuse there. Yeah, caught uh, your imagination. Yeah, it did really. Um, I think I was probably interested in flying machines a little bit before then, but yeah, to sort of see actually go in there and, and real hands-on exposure to it back in the days before all the safety barriers and all of that sort of stuff yeah. and yeah you could let you know they didn't seem to mind letting a whole pile of cr kids crawl up inside the airplanes and things <laughs> while they're on static display um yeah that really sort of fired the imagination and i mean i think really got into it from there um i recall a lot of the times when i was younger go to church and you sit in church and during the sermons and things uh, out comes a pad of paper and I'm starting to draw aeroplanes and stuff <laughs> um, all manner of stuff there and I think yeah some of the ideas for aeroplanes actually stuck came even right back to that time um, designing own aeroplanes and things um, and yeah it just became one of these things that sort of took off um, got into model aircraft and when I was young as kids did yep. and um, sort of got into taking that reasonably seriously for a kid um built up quite a big collection that sort of took over my room um uh, when you say model aircraft you're talking about plastic scale yeah models. 170 second scale kits um yeah. went into that and at that time i was building anything 170 second scale yeah. um and, and that was quite cool um sort of later on it wasn't until I sort of went and revisited models sort of a little bit later on um, that I went back into doing it. Uh, that would have been about, yeah, around about 2000-ish. I got back into models and yeah. got into my New Zealand collection, which I might talk about a bit later on. Yeah, sure, yeah, but, yeah. But, um, yeah, so making models of everything. Um, and, yeah, that was quite quite good. Um, then when I sort of left school, um, went into the Air Force, and that was a extraordinarily brief Air Force career of about two and a half weeks. Yeah. There's certain bits and pieces of the way that the Air Force did things that really bugged me. Um, being 17 at the time, 
yeah, there's certain things you make make calls along the way. Probably if I look back on it now, I probably could have coped with it, but yep. at the time I really was not coping very well with it, so I left that. Wh- uh, which recruit course were you on? Uh, there was R290. Right. right. Uh, so, yeah, Woodburn, and yeah, got to play with the SLRs and stuff, but yeah, after that, it was sort of, it was the polishing of brass window latches and stuff like that that really bugged me, and, <laughs> and the terrible bed rolls of all things. <laughs> Yeah. Terrible things, but um, yeah, we uh, yeah after that um, went into the aviation industry, working with Gulf Aeronautics up at Ardmore, which at that time had um, some guys who would later become quite well known in the aviation industry. Yep. Uh, while Denham was working there at the time, um, it was under Bruce Coulter at that time. Yeah, was the chief engineer, and. Um, yeah, I spent three years at Gulf Aeronautics uh, as a trainee tradesman, and that's where I sort of learnt the craft with aircraft trade. Um, Is that what you had planned to do in the Air Force, was aircraft? Yeah, technician? it was an aircraft engineering thing. I would have liked to get into that. I mean, one of my desired postings would have probably been to the um, Air Force Museum, but, I mean, that's <laughs> Air Force can sort of send you wherever they like, generally. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, that was the thing was to be an aircraft engineer, and I mean at that time, of course, in the early nineties, we still had fast jets, yeah. um, and things were looking quite hopeful there. We were just getting the, the air Mackies were in, and yeah, I thought, oh yeah, we're going to be have some interesting stuff to work with for a while. In hindsight, it probably wasn't a bad move to get out of that. Um, don't have anything against the air force, obviously, no. but um, just in terms of suiting my style of of work and engineering, I, I really found the civilian life and the civilian trade was quite interesting. Yeah. I mean, that particular organisation was really good because, I mean, Gulf Aeronautics did some very interesting stuff. Um, they had the Hawker Sea Fury there, uh, was one of the aeroplanes I worked on. Right. Uh, we did the maintenance checks on that. Um, Harvard 57 was just under rebuild. We looked after 99, it was sitting in the hangar. Yeah. Um, we had uh, we also did a bit of work rebuilding um, the second of the Venoms, um, the Mark IV uh, VNM. Yep. Um, so all of those aeroplanes I've sort of done a little bit of work with. Yeah. Um, but probably the most influential was actually looking after a fleet of Piper Cubs. We had three or four Piper Cubs from different owner private owners that um, looked after and. One of the things I had the privilege of doing was actually doing a lot of the fabric repairs on them, and that right. that for a young fella was was actually quite a different skill because there weren't many places in the country at that time looking after fabric-covered aeroplanes, and to learn the skill, I mean, that, that we were using um, cotton and dope, right, which right. is now no longer really used much, um, but even back in the 90s we were doing fabric repairs using that, and um, yeah, so I, I learnt a lot with the fabric work and I, I sort of developed a love also of um, the classic light aeroplanes uh, the Osters and the Cubs um, and, and you realise just what cool little aeroplanes they are um, they're sort of overlooked in the big picture of things with the big noisy warbirds and whatever but I actually really like them I think that they're it's, um, it's an area which appeals to me because it's something that anyone can actually do that's yep. affordable and get involved with. And they're aeroplanes of real character when you actually get into them. Right, right. Uh, they have little idiosyncrasies which sometimes may drive you up the wall, but they're, <laughs> they're, um, they're real 
aeroplanes of character and, I, and that was probably quite a, a major turning point because I really hadn't sort of thought much of the, the little bug smashes before then but <laughs> um, actually getting into them yeah learned a lot from that and yeah we looked after things also like the Devons and um, there are two Devons we looked after yeah um, KTT and UDO um, and bits and pieces like that um, so, so that was actually quite an interesting exposure to a huge range of different methods and construction techniques and things like that. So well, yeah, there must have been a huge difference between working on a on a, on a Piper Club Cub and then going on to the um, Sea Fury. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a real privilege. Um, the thing is, though, that it really taught the basic, the fundamentals of the aircraft engineering thing, things of your lock wiring and safety and stuff yep. relates the same to whatever type of airplane it is yeah um and things like bolts nuts and bolts hardware having british airplanes and the american airplanes in there at the same time you actually learned a little bit about the wonderful 2ba and 4ba bolts and things like that the right. is full of them yep um but yeah also just having experience i mean i we did the undercarriage retraction tests on the sea fury and the smallest lightest person in the group which was normally me got to sit in the cockpit and do the undercarriage retractions and hand pump and stuff like that so right. so it's quite cool sort of sitting there and i realized that yeah for such a huge airplane it's a beautiful comfortable cockpit it's sort of sized you sort of, it still feels like you're strapping on the airplane it's because yep. you're sitting there with the big bubble canopy and it's actually quite a cool thing um, but I mean, it, it's an incredible. That was an incredible aeroplane. You could actually go into the rear fuselage of that thing and stand upright on it. Um, there's a tiny little hatch underneath the belly where the battery is, and you slither past the battery and you're into the into the rear fuselage. We could have put three or four seats in there quite happily. It would have been quite a. Wow. You know, there, there was even talk of doing that at one stage. Since the, all the heavy military radios were out, we could have quite happily done it. Wow. Um, because uh, they actually had to put a big counterbalance in the skins above the tailplane. Yep. They're, they're double skin and full of lead shot we could, to counteract the weight of the removed radios. So we could have quite happily put seats in there if we. Uh, it would have would have been quite a practical thing for moving support crew around, things like that. Yeah. But that was, that, was, that was sort of one of the interesting places that I could say I've been. The other thing being small is I got to shoved up into all sorts of confined spaces like tail cone of an aero commander and things like that <laughs> um, to do all the awkward fitting jobs and things. One thing I really didn't enjoy there was doing this paint stripping though. Um, yeah. One thing I found I, I developed a chemical sensitivity to the paint strippers and I found that... Um, that I sort of tended to pass out a bit if I sort of was involved with the fumes too much. Right. It does actually say so on the packets and things, but at the time, I mean, health and safety wasn't quite so big an issue, and I had to sort of had to work quite hard to make sure that they actually bought me gloves and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was that's something which I really don't miss lying on my belly, paint strip, lying underneath the belly of a 172 or something like paint stripping all of that yep. and having it all fall on top of you it's lovely stuff not but um yeah so in 93 the, the business sort of went a, a bit quiet um various things there and i left there um i was laid off at golf aeronautics uh came back down here to the waikato and then did a few years with engine components at hamilton airport right. um they're doing overhaul of aircraft engine components odd the name says things like the cylinders and things like that they were doing the chrome plating and um cylinder refurbishment yeah which um 
it was quite good and um, learned a lot of stuff there and that actually got me into things like um, computer and documentation control because I did a lot of the process control work there, the entering the each item into the system as it goes down through the the um, through the chain of refurbishment, we could actually keep track of all of that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that sort of got me into IT essentially through doing that side of things. Okay. Bit of a weird way into it, but yeah. Um, so we went from there, um, and then once again that place got really quiet and laid off again. That was just after the '96 air show they had there. At Hamilton, yep. uh, and I went to work for Aeromotive across the airfield, um, using the computer skills that I'd picked up at EC um, to basically keep track of lifed items on things, yep. um, including at that time uh, the Bandarantes of Transglobal. Okay. Um, that was uh, KML was the first one in TZL, uh, and that actually was a link into the next position. But um, yeah, we sort of got to a point there where apparently they were. Aeromotive had some issues with having, uh, they needed certain qualifications for someone to do their QA work yep. um, and so I was actually moved from that side more into the stores work so the last few years I was actually working in the stores at Aeromotive right. um, which wasn't a wasted effort either because I then learned a lot of it, even more about aircraft hardware and componentry um, and also about made contacts with a number of vendors as to where bits and pieces were coming from um, and how things basically acquiring bits and pieces yep. a lot of stuff with um, importing stuff from overseas I managed to learn as well so I mean it's not 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 wasted working in there yep. during the time at Aeromotive I also learnt to fly uh, I got my pilot's license at the Waikato Aero Club okay. in 1997 um, and since that was right next door it was quite good you just in the summer evenings after work you just go wander next door and go flying which um, a really good way of doing things yep yep um, in 99 I was actually headhunted by Transglobal Holdings um, from because of my work that I'd done with with the um, the documentation side of things yep. and I went up to work for them and that was the outfit that became CityJet okay um, CityJet was a real eye-opener to work with because as as an, in, uh, an an operator, it was probably in hindsight it was quite a dodgy operation. Right. Um, it was one of these interesting places where you had a lot of the the corporate culture was very positive, go forward, um, get things done, team player type thing. Yeah. A lot of the management speak. A couple of young, very dynamic managing directors. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, you, you, the it sort of influenced along the way that there, there were shortcuts taken. I know very well I made errors with sh and shortcuts were taken yeah. during that point in time. We had four aeroplanes there, um, really under-resourced. And I, I was looking after coordinating all the maintenance, and we had things. Yeah, we didn't have a lot of resources, you know, spare parts, very little time to get maintenance done. Yep. Um, we're always on stop credit everywhere to try and get bits done. You had to do some backroom dealings to get pa to make sure some got paid before they actually got the work done and yep. stuff like that. And um, very stressful time. Um, I was always getting phone calls at 2am in the morning um, when the freighters came in to basically coordinate the maintenance for them if they got any bugs that needed fixing before the the, the um, 
the first flight went out in the morning at six so four hours you have to phone up a very grumpy duty engineer who doesn't who also doesn't like being woken up in the wee small hours of the morning and get the stuff sorted out and um, get it done um unfortunately like i was the only one doing that that probably if it was a bigger organisation, you'd have a team of people and you'd have someone rostered on on those late nights and things like that. Yeah. And I never, never happened there. Um, and yeah, it, it wasn't good. We, at the end of 99, um, Civil Aviation essentially shut CityJet due to discrepancy with logbook recordings, which was actually something which I'd discovered. And um, yeah, the bosses didn't seem to take particularly seriously just the impression I got at the time yeah but um, yeah we got shut down on that uh, and overnight we went from 120 people on staff down to just me I ended up working for the receiver for six months trying to clean up the mess of all the log books Um, really tough time and I mean we're trying to get the best that we could for all the staff and and things like that Um, and in the end yeah a bit of an eye-opener when you have a look at how receivers work and how how the finance industry works um it's it's pretty cutthroat yeah and ended up yeah working for them for a bit and um at the end of that i left the industry because to be honest i I had a guts full of of the the nastiness because you get the good stuff and then something like that happens and all of a sudden you see the bad stuff and a lot of backstabbing and things was going on around the place yeah. and yes yeah, so everyone in city jet was tainted by this brushes that we're incompetent or, or whatever it was it was a big thing that was being passed around yeah um the the rumor networks and things were running red hot and um and sort of guilt by association right and so i was actually really quite glad i got out of that yeah. uh, and then went through various bits and pieces did various fill-in jobs for the next year and a bit um, doing a bit of IT work and also doing a bit of work with uh, aluminium extrusion and toilet and shower partitions and things okay. and then via a series of, of things I actually um, got the job at the University of Waikato as an audio visual technician which was quite good at um, basically played to another one of my my loves of playing with technology and gadgets and stuff um, especially audio visual stuff Yep. And I've been there ever since, which is sort of, what's that, that's now over 10 years now. So, wow. uh, longest I've ever been in any one job so far in the career. And um, one of the things about that is an, an interesting thing that, that sort of reflects how the aviation industry in New Zealand works is um, when I was at CityJet, uh, looking after a fleet of four multi million dollar passenger carrying aeroplanes, I was on 30k a year thereabouts. Um, go to work for the University of Waikato and um, starting salary is about 37 looking after a fleet of data projectors <laughs> um, a lot less stress and stuff like that yeah. so, and I mean it just and it's a sort of organisation where you're moving forward along the way all the time Yeah. but I mean why would you want to hang around <laughs> the airline business on that sort of salary exactly yeah um, don't regret leaving the industry at all in that respect. What it did do, of course, is that it then enabled me to have the resources to actually start building my own aeroplane and getting involved in the aviation field on my own terms. Right, right. Um, which is where the aeroplane project comes in from there. Yeah, well, that's uh, something that we really want to um, hear about is uh, how you came up with the idea and inspiration and, and the design. Right. Um, sort of the seeds thoughts 
to build an airplane actually came during my time at Aeromotive. Um, I worked with a gentleman there um, in the stores who was involved with airplane with micro lights, and he had bought an airplane um, in a damaged state and. Uh, he was rebuilding it, and I had a little look at how it was done. And I thought, oh yeah, this actually, th- there's ways and means of doing this that don't cost the earth. Yeah. Okay. You can actually, yeah, it can be done. Um, when I was at CityJet, uh, we had the engineering workshops there that we had just started up. That was quite good because it had a whole load of really nice sheet metal tools. And I, I thought, well, okay, well, if I'm going to be working out here, I might do a little project in my own time and borrow some of these tools and the, the big sheet metal folders and things. Yeah. And that's where I started drawing up the designs for the adventurer. Now, originally it would have had a, a Cessna-type fuselage, a, a monocoque aluminium fuselage, yeah. um, fabric-covered wings and things still, um, but it would have had that monocoque fuselage because I had access to all the sheet metal tooling and stuff like that. Right. Um, when City went belly up, I sort of thought, well, okay, you might have to have a little bit of a rethink in this because that tooling is phenomenally expensive. So um, I actually redrew the design um, and came up with the idea. At the time, I was also working with the aluminium extrusion, so I sort of had various bits and pieces I could try playing with, any offcuts of aluminium, and yeah, you can sort of interlock them, oh, yeah, like this and this and this yep. sort of thing. And um, you actually... That came up with the idea of making the the aluminium truss structure that the that the airplane's made out of. Uh, it's not a unique design idea. Um, Rand's aircraft use it a bit. Um, Murphy Renegade ha- has the same thing, and the wing structure I chose is actually very similar to the way that Vickers Armstrong's built airplanes. Spitfire has wing ribs built the same way, and so does your favourite Wildebeest. Oh, excellent! Um, I was quite surprised when we went into the Quicker Museum a year or so back, and they had a jig on the wall for making Wildebeest wing rib jigs, wing ribs, and uh, it's actually almost identical to the design I had for building the wing ribs on the Adventurer. So, um, <laughs> Great minds think alike. Then. Obviously, that's the case. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, the the concept of the Adventurer was uh, for a two seat aeroplane. Um, I wanted a tail drag. It was back to my love of classic light aircraft. I wanted to have a vintage type tail dragger, fabric covered, um, two seat, probably preferably side by side, yep. and one of the other key things on it was it needed to have a decent sized baggage locker. Yep. At the time I'd had a look at things like the Avid Flyer, um, Murphy Rebels, all that sort of stuff. And one thing that they all seem to be lacking is a decent sized baggage bay. Because the idea was that you could go and take two people up to say Great Barrier Island for a weekend to go tramping. Yep. Problem is, is that you, you'd have to have a couple of tramping packs in the back there and tents and stuff. And the thing is that that's that's normally light because you actually have to be able to carry it, but it's bulky. Yes. Uh, and a lot of the existing aeroplanes will tend to um, max out with its cubic capacity in, the, in their baggage bay yep. before you actually went, ran out of weight. Right. Um, so what I did is I went and um, basically designed the aeroplane around the baggage bay. So this big bag type baggage bay, and then you sort of scale the aeroplane to suit around that. Um, and and you come along the way, you come across these things like okay, um, it's got these outward sloping doors. Now there are two reasons that came, that that came from. Yeah. Um, first one is at the time I was doing a lot of um, air rally flying. Um, when did 
the navigation exercise and things where you can it's really handy to be able to fly over something and look directly down on it yes, so, yep. so the outward opening observer doors were were quite quite a, a good thing but yep. they also solved a, quite a major technical issue as well um, because it's built out of aluminium tubing the bottom longerons um, are made out of square section one inch square aluminium tubing yep. now when you bend a square tube um, it really doesn't like bending too much before the walls start collapsing in on them as on the bend radiuses. Right. Um, so generally, when you with a steel tube longerons, you can't really bend them a lot. Yeah. Now, to get the width of two people side by side, um, and the tunnel down the middle, the control tunnel in between the two seats, yeah. uh, it would have meant that that would have been quite a big bend just in behind the cockpit to then taper off to the tail front, tail cone. Right. So, by narrowing that down, you actually reduce the bend on those bomb longerons. Um, and so, d by kicking the this cabin sidewalls out ten degrees, you then still have got shoulder room by the time you get up to shoulder height uh, to sit two people side by side. Right. Um, without bending that bottom longeron too much. Oh, okay. So actually, a bit of a cunning plan in that it gets around that technical issue. Gives you the downward visibility uh, and it creates this enormous amount of internal volume inside it. Um, yeah, well, I've sat in the cabin uh, with the door shut uh, when we did the engine run, and it was as comfortable as anything. It was a lot less tight than a yeah, lot of the planes. Yeah, yeah, we regularly find um, flying it now. You you have two adults in there, um, and yeah, you're not rubbing shoulders all yeah. the time, and you're not squeezed up against the door. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, some people may find that the visibility from the cabin is a little off-putting because they are perspex doors and you can see straight down below you. Um, I actually really quite like it. Yeah. But uh, one of the things I've got just built is actually what I call a chicken panel which goes on the passenger door, clips on inside the um, lower window on the passenger door which makes it look a little more solid. Okay. It's just a, essentially a trim panel which just clips in there. Yeah. So um, that... I haven't really used that yet, but um, it's there in case anyone sort of gets a little nervous with it. <laughs> but um, yeah, the aeroplane projects, um, the design concept was was on a, a two-seat side-by-side tail dragger. So at that time, then you start to have a look at existing designs. You look at things like the Osters, yep. um, Cubs, uh, and with the outside opening doors, yeah, Bird Dog and things come in there as well, the Cessna Bird Dog, yep. and in fact most of the, way, the Cessna series. I mean, they've... They do things pretty close to being right. Okay, yeah. they're they're a good, reliable aeroplane. The way they do things, yeah, it's pretty good. So you, yeah, I sort of had a look back on my experience at Golf and all the aeroplanes we looked after there, and the whole range of them. And you sort of cherry pick the good bit ideas and the bad ideas and yeah. things. Um, things like the flap hangers and things are bird dog based. Um, the cabin, the pilot and passenger seats, uh, based loosely on the Oster design, how the backs of them, you lift them up to swing them forward. Yep. Um, but they've got different bases again. Um, so you, you cherry pick, pick the features that you like, um, and I, and you you basically assemble them in, in, in a lot, you do a lot of real rough sketches to start with to just work out how they all fit together. Yep. Things like wing area and tail feather size, um, 
it's actually works a lot on the TLAR method. That looks about right. It's based on the ratios that you see on things like the Osters and 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 so on. Um, it's not a black art. Um, a lot of people think, can make them a lot more technical than than they could be. But when you have a look back at when um, the the Piper Cub and the Taylorcraft were designed. Yep. They weren't done with high-tech wind tunnels or anything like that. No. Guys set out a couple of chairs on the floor and drew a chalk outline around them. <laughs> um, and 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 you don't. Those aeroplanes have proven over time to be extremely versatile and good aeroplanes. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, we, you you don't have to get too carried away with. Uh, the hardcore um, aerodynamics of it. On an aeroplane of this nature, it's a lo- it's not a high performance aeroplane. Doesn't require supercritical aerofoils or any of that sort of stuff. Yeah. There was a bit of discussion over the aerofoil that I chose on the wing, uh, the um, NACA 4313-53. It's a it's a standard mathematical modelled aerofoil. Okay. Thirteen um, percent um, thickness at about forty percent cord. That's what the numbers mean. Yeah. Um, what it does, though, people are saying, oh, I'm not, what else uses that thing in that airfoil? Well, actually, very few th- use it. It was chosen primarily so that I could get the internal volume to put fuel tanks in the wings. Right. But it's actually very similar to the Cessna. It's a little bit thicker in, in, in um, cord and uh, thickness than the, than the Cessna, right. but very similar otherwise. Um, but the key thing that you need to remember is on a fabric-covered wing, the only patches it places on the wing that actually... Uh, that nominal airfoil are over the wing ribs. In between it, the fabric sort of scallops down in between the wing ribs, and it can be any airfoil section constantly variable between the ribs. Right. It sort of narrows itself down again and comes back up again. Right. Um, and so the actual numbers and things that you get from a fabric-covered wing could actually be anything. Um, okay. There is actually a surprising amount of... Um, flexibility there on on an aeroplane of this nature you don't have to get too carried away with that Um, so yeah we built that up and it's got um, washout on the outer panels as well so outboard of the wing struts um, the wing actually twists the spars actually stay straight but the position where the wing ribs pick up on the spar changes out to the tip and what that does is that it means that the wing tips actually the wing doesn't stall in one piece progressively stalls from the inboard end to the outboard end and what that do, it does is give it a really really mellow stalling characteristics which oh, okay. we found when we did the, the test flying right. has a number of other little has it has one or two little side effects which i'll talk about later yep. but um it's generally uh, it's actually a very sweet little wing so okay. um very very gentle in, in all its characteristics and yet it can actually it's reasonably low drag so it can get a reasonably high speed out of it as well right um yeah so basically the way the structure is built up is built up out of aluminium yeah um it's most of it's commercially available extrusion um being a commercial alloy um you played it safe and you go for a slightly heavier wall thickness on the on the extrusions. Yep. As a result, the aeroplane does go heavy. That's one of the, the little drawbacks with it. Um, but it's been we've demonstrated on the wing load tests and things like that. The structural strength of it is actually quite high. It meets all the requirements. Right. And it's and it's a, and it's a common sense sort of design using triangulated truss girders. 
Um, basically, anything that can be made up out of a out of a girder, and you just cross hatch it with angles of of aluminium. And the way on the aeroplane, the advantage with the extrusion is that it actually um, interlocks inside itself, so that it's not relying solely on the fastness strengths. It's actually um, has to they lock inside one another, and it's the metal to metal contact which gives it a lot of strength. Right. Um, one thing with it though is that you have to like building the wings, everything had to be put together in exactly the right sequence. Yeah. Otherwise, you would never, ever be able to get it together. Right. Um, so it's one of those things that I spent many, many nights lying awake at night, getting running through the sequence in my head as to how to actually build these things. Um, and it had to be done in just that right sequence. Right. I guess one of the things is... is to, the, the things that I can do is I can actually visualize three-dimensional objects and spatially put them together. Um, it's a gifting that not everyone has got right. to, to understand that thing, but if, if you are wired that way, then it's um, it's actually not as difficult as it seems, But yep. except at 2am in the morning when you're really wanting to get to sleep. <laughs> you're still assembling things in your head. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, so it's we, we sort of started then um, in, in my shed that I'd, I was renting off my church, uh, tiny little garage, and we started. I started building bits there, yeah. um, and the fuselage. You built all the bits on a flat on flat um, panel jigs, and to get all the all the corners right. The advantage of doing the aluminium extrusion was that it doesn't require a lot of heavy tooling. Yeah. Um, you've got a drop saw and a band saw. Um, and various files and cutting tools like that, but nothing like cheap metal folders or anything like that. Right. Uh, the disadvantage is, is that it has an enormously high component count. Um, you're talking each wing rib is uh, about 15, 16 pieces, not including the fasteners. Wow. So it's there, there are a lot of components that you have to cut up. But at the same time, um, a lot of them are standardised, so you can actually get into a production line basis um, to make the 34 wing rips that was done over a course of about three weeks uh, just go through and get the drops out and I'll cut up a batch of, of cap strips then cut up a batch of, of the, the cross tubings and all that sort of thing and you, and you have these boxes full of the bits sitting in front of you and you have your wing rib jig there and then you just start laying them out and assembling them, very much production line techniques Right, right but um, yeah, component count is phenomenally high. Um, I wouldn't know the exact the total component count on it. It's one of these sort of statistics on the aeroplane that everyone asks about. You never count it. Likewise, you never count the number of hours spent doing it. No. But um, yeah, we built. It was built over a period of ten years. Uh, had I did um, virtually all the work on it. Had a number of friends from the Sport Aircraft Association which I called in when I needed an extra pair of hands. Yep. Um, certain jobs do need two people, um, certainly the wing assembly did, yep. um, just to get everything all threaded through. Um, you mentioned the friends from um, Sport Aircraft Association. I guess in the de design phase as well, it must have been good to have other people to talk over um, different design well, aspects. Yeah, I, I actually really didn't do an awful lot of working with other people on the design phase. Um, one of the things that I, I actually visualised it a lot in my head, I don't have a lot of drawings for the aeroplane. Uh, and a lot of things you actually build when you get the pieces of alloy in your hand, 
um, you can actually work it out a little bit easier than um, than drawing it up all the time. So there's not a full set of drawings for the aeroplane. Right. But um, you, you work it out, and it, and it's a common sense sort of thing. And there are just one or, there are one or two issues that I sort of ran past a few people, but. Generally, I find if you ask too many people, you get too many different opinions, right. and it just clouds the matter. Yeah. Um, I guess you work on gut instinct a fair bit, and if anything, you overbuild it. I mean, the, I say the aeroplane is heavy for its size. It's, yeah. it's, it has that's one of the drawbacks with it. If anything, it is an overbuilt aeroplane. Right. right. But, um, yeah. but does that aspect of not having the um, the drawings uh, mean that this is a one-off and there would never there would never be another one, or um, I've got all the jigs still. A lot of the stuff is built on the assembly jigs, and you actually your drawings are the full size drawings when you set up the jigs. Yeah. You draw them out on the, on the piece of ply, of ply that you make the that you build them up from. Um, there probably won't be another one of these. Um, I've got the I can build replacement components should the need arise. Yeah. But um, there probably won't be another one like this. Uh, if I was doing it again, I would probably change a few things. Um, I'd even possibly make it about ten percent smaller. Right. Um, problem is, at ten percent smaller, then you're getting into the size of Kit Foxes and Highlanders and stuff like that, where there's already plenty of them on the market. So there's no real need to build an aeroplane ten percent smaller than right. this one. Right. So, um, yeah, it, it's it, it's been an interesting exercise in that respect. Um, and there's a few things that I would do differently next time around, yeah. and, um, and that sort of thing. There's certainly been a lot of dramas along the way. Yeah. Um, we actually had the aeroplane. F I say we, well, myself, um, and and the engineers out at Hamilton. We, the aeroplane was all complete and assembled in 2008. Right. And uh, well, early 2009. Um, and then we had a l lot of issues with trying to get the engine to go. Now, when it was in, in my shed, which um, by that time I'd actually moved through about three different sheds to one out at um, Tamahiri. Yeah. Um, when I was in the shed, because I couldn't actually fit, I could fit the wings on, but I couldn't take it outside with the wings on. Right. Because the door, door width. So at no point in time did I actually have it to a point where I could run the engine because um, you need the wings on to run it because that's where the fuel comes from. Right, of course, yeah. Um, and and so we get we get the airplane out to to Hamilton, assembled, go to start it, and the thing just doesn't start. We ended up chasing that for about eighteen months. Um, turns out that the chap who rebuilt my the core engine on it, yeah. um, which is a Subaru two liter Subaru, had actually assembled it um, with the cam belt out about a couple of teeth. Now, that was enough to scramble up all the signals coming from the. Um, the various cam and crank sensors which tells the electronic engine controller when to fire and everything so right. it was totally lost at that point in time but we spent 18 months before we discovered that wow. um, when we got it going it was actually pretty straightforward from there a few little tweaks and things um, we did make a, a, I was required to make a little change on one of the control column torque tubes yep. um, it all took time, and during that time, because it was in the way at the engineer's place, it was actually sitting outside, which was always a bit of a worry. Yeah. But um, we'd built some, I'd made some wing spoilers, which go on the outboard panels of the wings, um, to made out of 
foam um, pool noodles to try and stop the, the wings from lifting and things. And okay. I spent two winters sitting outside um, with that on and bought one of the, the nice covers that the Basel guys at um, Tecofi make okay. uh, as well. And the aeroplane, actually, considering it spent that time outside, was still in very good condition. Yeah, well, I remember it was sitting outside when we went and did that high-speed engine run yeah. uh, at the at the time, and um, I that was the first time I'd seen it running. I think it must have been, and um, I was amazed sitting in the cabin how quiet the engine was. Now, now that you've flown it since then, is it still quiet in mid-air? Or okay, the thing is, is um, we've it, it has actually got quite a distinctive noise. It's I wouldn't describe it as loud, but it is a very distinctive noise. When we were doing the engine runs, we hadn't got the prop set up right, so it was actually only pulling about 4,500 RPM. Right. It's now running 6,000 on takeoff, so it's that last 1,500 starts to get quite loud. Okay, yep. yep. Now, the other thing is is that the mufflers that were fitted at the time had silencer cones inside the, the tailpipes to try and keep the noise down. problem is, is that those mufflers really weren't coping with the, the gas flow on a short run from the engine. Um, and those uh, silences kept blowing out. I actually lost a set of them somewhere in flight, somewhere over the, in the Waikato, so okay. hopefully it didn't land on anyone. Um, but yeah, it, it, it also, possibly as a, as a result of sitting outside, the um, the baffling material inside the the mufflers had also deteriorated it started rusting out yeah. uh, and so it had actually taken a lot of that out and got quite noisy okay. um, what I've done is I've, the mufflers have been changed to New Zealand designed and made ones rather than the Chinese made ones um, that are really optimised for the gas flow yeah. um, they have a much ple- it, it's, it has quite a pleasant tone to them and it's most efficient and they last a lot more but the drawback is, is that they are fractionally louder and they, one of the nature of having twin pipes on a Subaru is that you get quite a raspy sort of noise there. Yep. You also get a bit of prop noise on takeoff. Okay. Um, but since we've been doing the test flying, um, there's a essentially it's a noise abatement process that we've developed of um, reducing power as once you're clear of obstacles, and also taking um, doing the prop ch- um, changing the prop pitch because it has got a variable pitch prop, yep. just to take a, a little bit of the bark off the prop, and it, um, it'll still climb pretty well, but it, uh, it reduces the noise. Okay. Um, but yeah, the initial takeoff roll can be a little bit loud. It's something we'll have to have a work on. I can't really lengthen the mufflers, because um, the mufflers actually play a role as part of the engine bay cooling as well, because right. they energise the airflow through the, uh, the, um, the engine bay through the radiators. So. Okay. Um, I don't. I can't really lengthen them anymore um, without losing the, some of that cooling efficiency. Okay. So, but um, yeah, the aeroplane it, it is. It's a distinctive sound, is, is what I'd say, more than a noisy sound. Yeah. Aeroplane. Certainly, when you're flying it um, with a decent set of headsets, you don't notice it no. particularly. Um, very smooth running engine, though. Um, no real engine, no real airframe vibration or anything from it. Right. And it just lovely and smooth. So great. And is the test phase testing um, phase finished at this stage? Or? Mm, well, we it has a forty-hour test flight period, and as we're speaking today, it's got just under twenty hours on that has, has been flown. Right. So we're about halfway through it. Um, the initial testing is the limitations phase. Now that was uh, carried out by Dave Mons. 
Yeah. Um, he's from Fielding. He was my, my primary test pilot. He's carried all of that out, um, and basically that gets where the limitations are. Um, and we get a lot of the performance stuff from there. Then the second phase is getting into reliability testing. Part of that is also to get me checked out and do it. Yep. And so that's being flown with the test pilots. Um, so on officially as test flight observer, yep. but it's in the process of being um, checked out and, and, and up to speed where I can then take over and do the remainder of the test flying period. Right. Um, big thing at the moment is, is just the availability of people to, to actually fly with. Uh, I've got Dave, the original test pilot, is obviously able to fly it, and I also have our local Piper Cup instructor, Bill Henwood, is also rated to fly it now. Um, right. And it's just, at the moment, I have to fly with either one of those two. Um, probably within the next few weeks, I'll be all checked out to fly it solo, but it's it's just finding time to get everything done. Yep. Um, it, it's... One of one of the stories of this aeroplane is that nothing ever happens as quick as you think it will. <laughs> yeah. Um, like most sort of aircraft. Like projects. most things, the project expands to full time available and then a bit more. Yeah. Um, it, it's it can be extraordinarily frustrating at times. I mean, the times what time it was sitting out at Hamilton, waiting was very very frustrating. Yeah. Um, it's flying now. At least it's in a hangar now, but to go fly. Um, but it's still taken quite a long time to get through to this point in time. We yeah. first flew back in March, it's now December. Um, theoretically 40 hours should be able to be flown off reasonably quickly but it's just we've had a very wet winter and um, both Dave and Bill are very busy people, they're both yeah. uh, commercial pilots by trade uh, and everything has to fit around all of that side of things so it's, it's just one of the frustrations that come with that. So. So once you get checked out and and the forty hours is completed and if everything's right, then it then becomes just a, yeah. an aeroplane that you can fly when it, you want. Yeah, it's, it changes from a, a special category experimental, which it is now, to special category amateur. But um, basically, then I it loses the restriction at the moment. It can only fly fifty nautical miles from Takofi, yeah. um, and it has to be with a test pilot on board. Theoretically, no passengers, but they're they're happy enough to have as a test flight observer to someone who is learning to fly the thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, essentially at that point, yeah, it can carry passengers. Um, it will never be able to fly over built-up areas. Uh, is the the restriction on it? Um, some home books can do that. The ones that are using factory-built engines and are sort of known reputable kits. Yeah. Generally, the the civil aviation are happy enough to allow that, but. They basically said that it's not going to happen with a one-off, undesigned, powered by an automotive engine. Right. So, um, but that's fine. That still allows you to. Do, you can still fly over build-up areas for takeoff and landing purposes, uh, and things like that. And and there's an awful lot of the country you can fly around without flying over cities and stuff. So. True. Yeah. So. Be um, more picturesque anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're certainly not going to be flying over built-up areas up in the. Of a Mesopotamia station up in the in the Southern Alps or anything like that. It's um, it's uh, basically the idea is, is it is it was always designed as an aeroplane to go out and explore the country with. It's yeah. a it's a it's a touring aeroplane. It's got plenty of gas on board, baggage and stuff. So the idea is to get out and use it. Um, we are a little bit restricted. 
from what the original plan was because the aeroplane is heavy um, it has restricted us a little bit on the flexibility um, baggage fuel passenger balance and things right. um, it's probably not not as ideal as I had originally intended but it's still going to be practically enough for what we're doing so right, right. sort of cruising around the place so I mean most of the time it's going to be just me flying it anyway so okay and with the um, the restriction of uh, distance from um, to Kofo uh, during this test phase I guess that means that you probably won't be able to get it over to Tauranga for the air show in January uh, Tauranga is 53 miles oh. um, well you can get easy enough to get a special flight permit so um, I've got to get apply for my get my test pilot approval once I've got checked out in it anyway and I'll get the um, the test flight the specific flight approval for Tauranga so that's neither here nor there in that respect so. okay okay um, so it's not far out of the out of the way so right. I don't see that there'll be any any um, problems with that at all okay well just um now that you've almost at the end of the whole uh, come up with an idea and build it phase do you recommend it to other people yeah it's um i mean not everyone would would do would do an own design um you have to do it with a little bit of care um and a little bit and a bit of knowledge uh, as i say a little knowledge is a dangerous thing but you do need to have enough of a grounding and aircraft principles to understand what you're doing right as i said earlier though it's not a black art it's there is a lot of room for flexibility on a lower performance aircraft. Yeah. Um, if you stack the cards in your favour all the way along, you're going to be okay. If you start having to trade off stuff and 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 build things lighter than you intended and things like that, then then you're starting to get into an area where you really need to have a look at yeah where your engineering skills and your engineering analysis of it is right, right. um you gotta ha i think the key thing is is it was it was a challenge which i always wanted to do um and and you you do you do what it takes to make it work yeah not everyone i think actually wants that level of challenge right but um to build an airplane at all is, is a big enough challenge yes yeah so, yeah, understanding where your own limitations lie, um, but at the same time, having confidence is, is quite important too. Yeah. Um, I guess I, some people may sort of have thought that I was a bit overconfident, um, but as I say, I, I believed I, I could actually visualise how it all goes together, and I could see the finished article, and I could see... How, how it all worked and so you just worked long and just worked to it well i mean i can remember when you first told me about this project uh in 2001 when i started at the university and i saw your model sitting on your uh you had a model of it already sitting on your desk and and from that point on i've been following it and i've never ever lacked any confidence that you were going to finish it and fly it i always thought it was going to happen yeah i mean that's the thing um and and that's that's the, the the project has always had a motto. If it was supposed to be easy, everybody would be doing it. Exactly, yeah. Um, and I, I've had to come back on that many times. That Okay, yeah, this is a difficult spot. Okay, what does it take to work the problem and sort it out? Yeah. Um, it looks like a big project, but what it is is it's made up of, like any aeroplane is made up of a collection of componentry. 
each of those pieces of componentry on a factory built airplane, someone made it. Yeah. So it must be possible to do it. Yeah. So all it takes is to break the project down into little bite-sized bits, and you'll work through it. Okay, it might have taken me three months to build the seat frames, but okay, I've got a seat frame. It works. The mechanism works fine. Yeah. Um, those sort of things, you just little bit at a time, and keep doing something. If you, if I'd let the project lapse. I think it would have been struggling to finish. Right. But um, it was quite... Inca- I had an incentive to do it. First of all, I was renting the workshop that it was in. Okay? Right. Yeah, yep. If you're paying money to rent for something, you're going to get your money's worth out yes. of it. Yes, yep. Um, the other thing is, is okay, it was... Uh, the, you constantly come back to it and you, and you do something on it and you make some progress. Uh, I had... Th- generally, I... I, I made sure I had at least three building nights a week. Yep. Uh, go out and work two and a half hours or so for those three and then a, a weekend and things if I needed to. Yep. And I think probably having the SA, being a member of the SAA is that um, the guy, you, you go to the SAA meetings, the first thing the guy say, how's your project coming along? Yes. And it's a really good incentive to help sort of keep things moving along. Exactly, exactly. So... And there's uh, been a lot of interest on the forum with it as yeah, well, Yeah, that's the it? thing, is... Okay, it may be a big goal. Put it out there, and then then you've got people to keep you honest and to yeah. keep you keep you with it, and that helps helps achieve it. Yeah, yeah. How many um, have you any idea of how many people have actually done exactly what you've done in New Zealand, where they've sat down with a brand new design and built it and flown it? Is it in the hundreds, or is it in the fifties, or? I I think that. Um, at, at the moment in New Zealand, I can think of probably only a handful currently operating. Yeah. Um, for sort of five or six. So, over the course of the home book movement, which sort of st- really start, sort of started moving in about the 60s, probably since that time in the modern home book movement, you'd have probably on- only got maybe 10, 20 or so at the absolute most. Wow. Um, before then, in the 30s, it was quite a common thing. I mean, most of the home-built aircraft were own design stuff. I mean, even going right back to 1902, 1903, Richard Pierce, yes, our, our first home-builder in New Zealand, and I don't for a moment say that he flew ahead of everyone or flew successfully, but, but I'd have to, I have to give him credit. He was New Zealand's first home-built aeroplane builder. Yeah. And, uh, okay, for better or worse, he designed and built his own aeroplane. Okay, so... I would still say, yeah, that even over that period of time, you would be, it would be less than 50 all up. Right, okay. Well, that's quite remarkable then. You're in a very, very uh, exclusive club. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's really interesting, yeah, where you talk to people and, yeah, here I have an aeroplane which is absolutely one of a kind. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I can go around and say, yes, I'm an aircraft designer. Um Something I've always wanted to do. Okay, yep. may not have any formal qualifications of aircraft design, but I have designed and built a successful aeroplane. Yeah. Who, who needs a formal qualification when you can take them and show them the plane? Yeah, the aeroplane's there. Yeah. It's, um, and that's the thing. Uh, one of the cool things is, is that New Zealand has got this environment where we can do this. We don't have... In, in the UK, I couldn't have done what I've just done right. without mountains of paperwork to chase around. Yeah. Um, in New Zealand, it's been very straightforward. Civil Aviation Authority have been extremely helpful. The, the legislative environment is such that yeah, you can actually do anything you can, anything you like, providing it's sensible and it's booked to a high enough standard. Right. And you take it on as your own risk and 
and it's a risk management type thing. But um, you've got a lot of freedom there. Um, okay. I think probably only the US has got a an equivalent um, sort of system there. Right. So we're actually really fortunate here in New Zealand to have this. Um, and and so New Zealanders by nature are innovators. Yes. And I think that um, it is the, when you have a look through the home built movement. Um, there's very few home built airplanes even that are absolutely straight out of the box. Right. Right. Everyone has done something with them that's a little bit innovative and trying yep. something a little bit different and, and putting their creativity into it. And that's a really exciting thing about it. Right. Actually, um, and you mentioned talk, talk, talking about um, looking at the aeroplanes. There are sort of annual gatherings and you're very involved in one of them. Yeah, um, th- there's, there's lots of gatherings. Um, just mention a little bit about Sport Aircraft Association since I've... In the course of all of the building, I've managed to become a member of the Sport Aircraft Association National Executive, right? Um, and a, also a, um, on our local chapter council as well. Yeah. Now, um, one of the things with the Sport Aircraft Association is it uh, encourages members to to go out flying and to enjoy recreational flying. Yeah. And it's not just for people who've built their own aeroplanes; it's for anyone. Um, we have our annual conventions every year that alternate between Ashburton and Tauranga. This year's one's, uh, 2012's one will be in Tauranga. Yeah. Last, uh, and hopefully the aeroplane will be there for its public debut there. But also in between we have various chapter gatherings. One of the ones that I'm involved with is the Black Sands Flying at Raglan, right. which uh, we started seven years ago. Um, as our it seems to what we call grassroots flying. Basically, all comers. Okay, doesn't matter what you fly in. If it can get into Raglan, bring it in. Yeah. Um, and it becomes a time of just a social gathering. You fly in. You talk to other people. Spot, talk a lot of aeroplane. Um, uh, and 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 enjoy one another's company. Catch up with people from all around the country. Yeah. And um, and look at planes. Look at planes. And we do have some flying activities. One of the big things we do at Raglan that. We, that we that's sort of the point of difference for that flying is uh, when we can is we have a, a beach flying thing where we go out to a beach um, Gibson's Beach which is about 8 miles north of the Raglan Harbour mouth yep. um, no road access so it's a really good beach to work from that you're not going to have too many people wandering across it right. um, huge wide black sand beach very firm and we'll go and put the aeroplanes onto there as a basically to illustrate how you'd do that in the event of say a forced landing or weather clothing in around you um, and to do something a little bit different yeah um, uh, we've put last uh, the last time we did it we didn't do it this year because the tides were wrong but the the previous year we put 27 airplane onto the beach um, and 27 got off again yeah 27 got <laughs> off with a fair pile of the muscles off the the muscle rocks at the end of the bay as well so um, <laughs> It's just something really different to do, and um, it's entirely voluntary. You know, the people don't ha- don't have to do it, but um, we do it with proper training and things. We have a have a briefing beforehand as to look at sand conditions, how to judge that, and right. what right. the airflow is doing over a beach, which is a, quite a lot different from flying off a off an airstrip. 
Yep. Um, so it's a good chance to sort of um, add some new skills to the, the to the repertoire. Yep. Exactly. And uh, do something really different, and it's certainly spectacular as far as photography goes. If you, yeah. Uh, to see these airplanes on a black sand beach, it's uh, that's absolutely beautiful. Um, so yeah, we'll hopefully be doing that again. Um, our next one for 2012 is on the weekend of the 11th to 13th of November, and uh, we do have uh, tides suitable for flying on the beaches then. Right. So um, that's the plan at the stage, early days yet, of course. But um, well, I've attended one of the Black Sands um, weekends uh, with you, as you know, and um, I I come from a a military aviation background and and have never had much to do with the home building side but I found it both fascinating and really enjoyable to to um hang out there for the weekend and just watch the aeroplanes coming and going and talk to the people and it was a, it was really um a, a neat friendly atmosphere yeah that that's one of the things which I really like about SAA is that it doesn't seem to have a lot of ego attached to it yeah people come along and it doesn't matter what you fly it doesn't matter whether you're an airline pilot or fast jet pilot or whatever yeah. um you're a home builder yeah um you come along you you just chill out and enjoy it and everyone tells stories and it's and you learn from one another and you learn it doesn't as i doesn't have any major ego attached and you just you're all mates yeah yep. and and the cool thing is i can drop into any airfield in the country and in fact anywhere in the world um and sort of go and wander around any hangars and if you find a home builder there and you introduce yourself as a home builder to them um hey you'll be there for hours chatting away and yeah. no matter where in the world you are i found out over in australia i was over in australia earlier this year and the same thing you go into these out of the way places a guy you wouldn't know from grain of salt he's got a home built airplane you've got a home built airplane you're mates yeah yeah exactly <laughs> so it's all good uh, you were going to talk about um uh um, upcoming uh, seminar was it? Too? Yeah, one of the other things the SAA does, um, uh, we we provide we do provide upskilling opportunities along the way. Yeah. At our national conventions, we have various seminars on um, building and things like that. Yep. Um, we also offer maintenance courses. Uh, one of the things when you've built your home built airplane, the way the legislation works at the moment is that you're actually not allowed to do the maintenance on it yourself or sign that off. Right. Um, unless you have a maintenance approval so most people use um, licensed aircraft engineers and things but we actually run these um, maintenance approval courses and I was involved with the one that we did in Ashburton earlier this year and uh, will be for the next few of them as well Um, it's a a course which covers um, the legislative environment that you have to work in and the basic practices of aircraft maintenance so that's one thing that we're doing um, for the guys that have got their airplanes built and that are going to be um, that are wanting to get into that. It actually saves them a lot of money in the long run because you're not having to pay for a licensed guy to look after them. Right. It's, I mean, we it's not an ex, not a cheap business to actually get your approval, but it's it's worthwhile. But um, sort of out of that, we from some of the feedback that we got, we we heard that no, oh, well. Some of the stuff would have been really useful to know before they started building airplanes. Yes. So, one of the new initiatives coming up for 2012 is uh, a pre-build course for people who are at, have sort of decided that they'll build an airplane and they know roughly what they want to build. Yeah. Um, but they just don't know where to start. And there's actually 
a lot of people in that, that sort of position. Yeah. Or they're just not motivated enough, haven't got the motivation to sort of get the, to start driving the first rivets and things like that. Right. So what we want to do is do a course um, which will cover, okay, what you can and can't do when you're building a home built. Um, the basic practices, the aircraft practices. I, I was fortunate I was in the aviation industry. I learned that yeah. in, back in the early days. Not everyone knows that. Not everyone knows what the safety how many threads of safety you have to have on an aircraft bolt, yep. for example. Okay, um, and by the time they find that out, they may be having the aeroplane ready for inspection and things like that at the end. And so, the good thing is to learn all these basic principles up front. Yeah. Um, and we'll have a look at things like um, what do you need to have in, in terms of your your workshop. Um, helpful tips for prioritising your time and things and things you have to check before you start building um, we call it the three F's it's quite a common one which is um, finance facilities and family um, three very important factors which can make or break an aircraft project quite happily right. so get those right um, and make sure those all those boxes are ticked before you get get underway and yeah we'll go through a lot of the practical side of things uh, we want to have some practical demos and things as well try and make it really hands-on so we're looking at doing that probably about april may next year okay um and if anyone's interested in that the info will come up on the uh, saa webpage uh, in due course yep um so that's that's one of my projects i'm involved with um because of the um my involvement with the maintenance program course, a lot of the stuff overlaps, so I'm actually sort of doing a lot of the driving on the in the pre-build course as well. Right, right. Okay. Um, I think we've probably talked enough about big planes. Do you want to now talk about, you mentioned you go back to your RNZF uh, model collection. Yeah, the model collection. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's, an, it's something back, uh, you know, it was about 2000 I started going through my old model collection and getting rid of a lot of the older ones which I really wasn't all that happy with and I thought well I'd really like to see just how many of the RNZAF types I can get into one collection Yeah. and uh, so I had a list of aircraft types and surprisingly you can actually get most of them um, and over the years I've actually collected these kits and they're all 170 scale which is the, the really tricky bit because yeah. I don't want to have a mixed scale collection. Yeah. Um, and based on the aircraft types that were officially on on board, uh, the impressed aircraft I'll just leave out for the time being. Although I have got some of the uh, World War Two impressed aircraft there already. Yeah. But on on the officially on strength aircraft, um, I've managed to source all except for about uh, four types. Okay. Um, which are the the biggest one is the Boeing 757 right. and 170 CN scale, no kit available at the at this point in time, um, but it's things like the Miles Aerovan, Sarakati Sark, and uh, one other which I haven't, which I can't remember off the top of my head, yeah. but um, yeah, those ones there, the Aerovan and the Cutty Sark should be able to be scratch built when I summon up the the energy and time to do that. Yep. Um, but yeah, the Boeing 757, that's going to be a little bit tricky at this point in time. So if any of the model companies are sort of listening to this broadcast, and time to start looking at a Boeing 757, I'd say. But I mean, that, the collection is, hunting for the bits has actually been quite interesting. I sort of do a lot of work running around on eBay and 
things like that to try and find them. And you'll find the rarities come up, things like the um, Hawkes and the Andover VAC form kit. Yeah. Um, the uh, Contrail Singapore that yep. I used, which uh, some of these are really rare. Um, I've got a De Havilland DH9 somewhere, which is also a very rare VAC form. Ferry 3Fs. Really weird sort of things that they're out there, but you just have to look for them and keep checking on them yeah. on eBay. If you see them come up, you grab them. And once again, some of these are horrendously expensive, and it comes down to okay, if you want it for your for your collection, you pay whatever its going rate is. Yeah. And I know that the Singapore, for example, was over a hundred New Zealand dollars. My um, my Boeing seven two seven was about a hundred and fifty dollars worth. Um, plus freight coming in right. from the states, um, and the worst thing is, is on on something like the the seven two seven, it's a dash two hundred. Yeah. So I had to get this very expensive kit and put it through the bandsaw <laughs> um, to actually convert it back to the hundred series, um, which it's a good incentive to get it right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and. But I mean, it's the same sort of principle that you do with the airplane, with the full size airplanes. Is you just work through them precisely and, and you do them and yeah. it, the good thing about the model airplanes is that it is an art form it is a creative process um the finishing on them and, and the weathering it's it's very much um an artistic process yeah. so there's no right way or wrong way of doing that you do what you think is right to create your impression of that airplane at that point in time and yeah. its, and its yeah. existence and of course another really um interesting part of it is the research to, to find the colour scheme and yeah. f- find the theatre of war it might have been in and that sort of thing. It's yeah, that's exactly it. You can you learn a lot from it. Um, I, was, I was surprised even even sort of reasonably modern aeroplanes from my own time frame, the, the Fokker Friendship, um, the research that went in there and in that case uh, scratch building, um, wing tanks and stuff like that and I also found, could look at the photos and I could find Virtually the entire antenna fit for the aeroplane. They're fairly distinctive sets of electronics on those friendships. And yeah. So we to get the antenna fit right, and I was pretty pleased when I got that one done. Uh, it's a good-looking model, that one. Right. I, I think um, you know I've had a good look at your collection, and it's uh, it's appeared at a, cu- a couple of the forum meets as well, of course, as yeah. some of them have. And um, I, I think personally, my favourite has to be the short Singapore. You did an amazing job of that. Yeah. For, particularly for an old vacuum, vacuum form kit. Yeah, that was, it was it was hard work kit there. That, that required a lot of re-engineering it, yeah. uh, and that's where your scratch building skills come in as well. Because okay, you've got your basic kit, but you need to work from there. So we, we went through all of that, um, and that was also one of the first I actually airbrushed. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I was really quite pleased with how it turned out I don't think it would have turned out anywhere near as good if it hadn't been airbrushed because it was such a worn tired looking airplane in, in yeah. RNZF service yeah. you wouldn't have done it justice if it was nice and bright and shiny and, and smoothly painted Absolutely, it right. actually had to be weathered and it was um, the technique of weathering um, you can spend hours talking about how that's done and it's you work out the paint, t- the original paint tone, and you lighten it up yeah. in, in stages, and you're applying it um, even on one tone of grey. There may actually have three or four different subtones of it to yes. actually make it work. Plus, you're 
exposed metal and all of that sort of stuff on there as well. Yeah. And so, yeah, that was where studying these very poor wartime photos and depth and you think, well, okay, where would the water be running off if it had been sitting out in a tropical downpour and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And you sort of think about that. Okay, and what, how, did, how did they do repair, fabric repairs at the time? What were, what colour dopes would they use? All that sort of thing. Yeah. And so you think about that. Where would the fabric wear on this aeroplane? Because yeah. um, there's a lot of fabric on the yeah, Singapore, isn't there? Yeah, they're so. a huge fabric aeroplane, the wings and... Yeah. So so yeah, it was that was quite an exercise, and I was really pleased with the result. And when you t- can take a photo of it, chuck it into into black and white, and compare it against the wartime photos, and yeah, you, you know you got it right. Yeah. It's, yeah. Um, I, I'm really satisfied with that. Um, I know it got a huge reaction on the forum too. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it, that for me was really good because it also highlighted the the real aircraft in their service as well, which they often get forgotten. That's exactly it. And so, yeah, these ki- these kits are rare. The aeroplanes are also equally rare and unknown. Yeah. I mean, all the, all the commonly known aeroplanes, you can get kits for those quite easily. Yeah. But, yeah, to try and find things. I've got a DH-50 there. I scratch-built the fuselage and used DH-4 wings and things like that. Right. Where on earth would anyone else sort of hear about a DH-50? That's right. Um, it, it's really quite an interesting exercise. Yeah. Um, and just uh, mentioning the forum again, I always ask uh, forum members that I'm interviewing to talk about their favourite threads. Um, yeah, maybe your top five favourite threads from the forum. What, what, what would yours be? Uh, I'd have to say Al's Bristol project. Um, yeah, of course. Both the, the Bristol freighter and, and his engine. Yeah. Uh, that's great. Love engineering type threads like that. Yeah. Uh, and, and the threads, uh, the photo threads on, on by aircraft type where we've had a look at the... Um, yeah, the Harvards, for example, yep. and um, the DC-3s. Yeah. Uh, just to sort of show the variety of stuff that we've had around the place. Um, they've been really good value. Right, right. Um, and any sort of favourite modelling threads as well, since you're a modeler? Uh, Anthony's ones on the um, on the Corsair and on the on his um, BK-117. Right. Uh, yep. Anthony, if you're listening to this, get that, that helicopter finished soon, mate. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so that's that, those are pretty good ones. And I really enjoyed the th- forum, actually. It's something I, I keep an eye on every day. Yeah. Um, You're one of the original members as well. Yeah, Bruce. I was. I think I signed up on the day that it, that it, it opened. Exactly, so, yeah. Um, and, yeah, I've been on every day virtually ever since. So <laughs> it's all well, brilliant. Excellent. Well, we'll probably close the show there now. Yep. Um, thank you very much for uh, your time and appearing. It's been fascinating to listen to the process of going through building, design and building the aircraft and that sort of thing. Yep. So, um, yeah, thanks very much. Yeah, no worries. One thing I would just say, though, before I go is... Sure. key thing that, that you get out of all of these projects of building is to, to chase dreams. Um, one of the things I, li- I like to tell younger people about nowadays is, okay, this aeroplane that I've got didn't come off a off the shelf yeah okay it was something that i wanted to do and i found a way of making it happen um yep. one of the things that we can learn from all of these things is, is to stick with it extraordinarily frustrating at times on all these projects yep. um but they're worth doing and you find a way of making them work if they're important to you and that's that's probably one of the key things i really like to sort of share with people when i talk about the airplane is that yeah right. it's not an easy project it's not but you go out there, you do you do what needs to be done in order to make it work, and 
and you get the rewards from that. Um, the energy and the effort that you put in gets rewarded back to you, and that's that's the thing that I think that from any the home built aircraft movement can tell people in general. Okay, yep. you don't have to build an aeroplane, but whatever goals and dreams that you have, if they're important to you, you find a way of making them work, and you go and and you do it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I totally agree with that. Okay. That's excellent. Okay, well, thank you very much, Bruce, and uh, we'll see you on the forum. Absolutely. Okay, cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye.